Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As you can see on the overhead, we have a very uh, provocative title today, The Rise of the False Messiah and the Mark of the Beast. <laughs> We're in a series on the book of Daniel. We're almost done. Today is chapter 11, just one more chapter after today. So to start, I want you to all imagine, if you will, that you are now living in Ephesus, in the heart of the Roman Empire, at the end of the first century of the Common Era. Uh, In the middle of the city is what's known as the Agora, or or the marketplace. Uh, Ephesus was the center of world trade, uniting the eastern and the western halves of the Roman Empire. Ephesus is ruled by the Roman emperors, who believed that they were gods. The Roman emperors demanded that the subjects of the kingdom worship them. One of the ways they enforced uh, and and taught emperor worship was that in order for you to be able to buy and sell uh, in the agora, in the marketplace, uh, in Ephesus, you first had to make an offering to Caesar. They'd have stands where you would make these incense offerings uh, to the Roman emperor, acknowledging him as a god, as God on earth. Once you offer the incense to Caesar, then you could buy and sell. Now, here's the problem. How could the Roman officials tell who had offered the incense and who had not? Well, according to ancient Roman historians, there was some sort of mark you were given, some sort of ink stain on your hand to demonstrate that you had worshipped Caesar. You had acknowledged Caesar as God, uh, and you could now engage, uh, you could now buy and sell, you could now engage in commerce. Now, the Messianic believers were, of course, horrified and totally opposed to this. Uh, They taught that if there was ever anyone who said, worship me, other than the Lord himself, this person had set himself up as a God uh, and was in direct opposition to the one true God of Israel. And so anyone who demanded worship was operating in the power of Satan, of whom they referred to as the dragon. Anyone who said, worship me, other than the Lord, uh, the word that they would use in their popular literature to describe him is they called that person a beast. So the question in Ephesus at the end of the first century was, do I take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell? Now imagine you're a worker in Ephesus, you're a tradesman in, in one, of the, uh, one of the guilds, one of the trade guilds, uh, you're an ironsmith or, or a shipbuilder or a shopkeeper or a weaver, you've got five or six kids, uh, let's, say, let's say you're a weaver, you take fabrics from the east, uh, you make clothing, that's how you feed your family, you become a believer in the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. You come to believe in the one true God of Israel. Uh, who has come and announced uh, his kingdom that it's at hand now in the person of the Messiah, Yeshua. You worship the one true God who came in the person of his son, Yeshua. You've been redeemed. You've joined this new uh, revolutionary community of believers. And, and you now show up in the Agora, in the marketplace, to, to sell your clothes. Uh, and the officials say, oh, wait a minute, you don't have the mark. You need to go back to the altar, offer incense to Caesar, and then you come back with the mark and you can go ahead and, and buy and sell and, and set, up, set up your shop. What do you do? What does the coppersmith do or the shoemaker or the guy who works in the horse's stables or the silk dealer who's now a follower of Yeshua? I've got to feed my family. They're hungry. They're crying. They're begging for food. What do I do when my baby is starving? Do I take the mark of the beast or not? This was real life at the end of the first century in Ephesus. And the scriptures tell us that the same scenario will repeat itself again in the last days with the rise of the false messiah, the anti-messiah, because there's nothing new under the sun. And Daniel discusses this coming end times anti-messiah here in chapter 11. Daniel 11 chronicles for us the the reign of rebellion on earth. 
and the history of warring empires uh, battling back and forth and gives us this sweeping panorama uh, from, the, from the hundreds of years before the time of Yeshua all the way to the very end in the time of the false messiah uh, and the great tribulation uh, and the return of Yeshua with Israel trapped in the middle during much of this time, often trampled underfoot. We see the Lord chastening Israel for their unbelief uh, and for their disobedience, that they might repent and return to the Lord uh, and receive their kinsman redeemer, uh, their deliverer from, the, from their tribulation, Yeshua, their Messiah. Well, chapter 11, it opens up with the angel we saw back last week in chapter 10, telling Daniel this, Daniel 11, verse 1 on, on the overhead. Uh, the angel says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, the king of the Medo-Persian, of Medo-Persia, I, this Daniel, this, the angel says, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him, uh, for Darius uh, the king. The angel is encouraging Darius to allow the Jews to return from Babylon back to Israel. Uh, and of course, the decree was issued allowing them to return. And the angel is also not only encouraging, but he's protecting Darius, the verse says. Why? Because the prince of Persia this demonic force, evil force over the empire of Persia, is opposing God's plan. He's trying to influence the king to prevent the Jews' return. Indeed, verse 2 tells us of, of a, of a uh, fourth Persian king who will arise, uh, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, whom the prince of Persia stirred up uh, to issue another kind of decree uh, under Haman uh, to annihilate all the Jews. So we see these demonic forces behind the scenes. Uh, and godly angels opposing them. It was intense battle of, of spiritual warfare. Uh, the angel now gives Daniel, beginning in verse 2, an account of the next several uh, hundred years of the history of Israel. And this account is so accurate and so remarkable and so verifiable that the liberal critics howl at this. You know, they go, hey, they've gone ballistic trying to say such predictions are impossible and that the book of Daniel, therefore, must have been written hundreds of years later. It's a fraud. It's a forgery. It's written after the fact. And someone just forged Daniel's name on it. Uh, why? Because they refuse to believe in prophecy. Or that the scriptures really are the word of God. But, but by the way, copies of Daniel in the Septuagint, way back hundreds of years before Yeshua. Uh, and fragments of the book of Daniel found in the Dead Sea Scrolls written again hundreds of years before the time of Yeshua, have been found that exactly match our text and verify its historicity. Chapter 11 gives us the detailed account of the Persian and the Greek empires. And we know it all came to pass, just as Daniel says, because we, we know Persian and Greek history, and we can verify it. Now, I'm, today, I'm not going to recount all the intricate details of this history in the first half of chapter 11. Uh, of all the wars and all the intrigues between the, they will call, what Daniel calls the king of the south, which is Egypt, and the king of the north, which is Syria. But instead, I'm going to focus in today just on Antiochus Epiphanes at the end of chapter 11, because he is a clear picture of the false messiah to come, that Israel must be on guard against, and that we must be on guard against. Now, in the north, uh, in Syria, a king arises by the name of Antiochus, he becomes the most powerful ruler in his day. And this takes us all the way through up to, chapter, up to verse 21 uh, in chapter 11. And then, and then rise a number of his descendants. And then one of his descendants is Antiochus IV, also called Antiochus Epiphanes, who is this tyrannical ruler who, who desecrated the temple, uh, forced Hellenism on the Jews, and was finally uh, defeated by Judah Maccabee, as told in the story of Hanukkah. So let's turn now to Daniel 11, verse 21 uh, on the overhead. Uh, this describes Antiochus as, quote, a contemptible or a vile person who has not been given the honor of royalty. Uh, he'll invade the, the kingdom, meaning the Syrian kingdom, uh, when its people feel secure, and he'll seize it through intrigue. So he's the picture of the anti-Messiah to come. He has no right to the throne, but he seizes it through deception, through flattery, through cunning, through bribery. Verse 28 tells us he sets himself, his, his heart against the Jews, against Israel, against what Daniel calls the Holy Covenant. Uh, he, he desecrates the land of Israel. He sacks the city in Jerusalem, slaughters thousands. Verses 29 and 30, we're told he attacks then Egypt, the king of the south. Uh, but then the ships of Katim, uh, meaning Rome, uh, come to Egypt's rescue uh, and thwart his plans. Uh, 
uh, so, uh, so Antiochus now returns and becomes enraged against Israel, against the Holy Covenant. And he enlists the aid of certain apostate Jews, certain turncoats, certain traitors. Uh, verse 30 calls them those who forsake the Holy Covenant uh, to assist him. So let's turn to Daniel 11, verse 31. And forces from him, from Antiochus, will arise, desecrate the sanctuary, uh, the temple, and do away with the regular daily sacrifice. Uh, and they will then set up the abomination of desolations. Antiochus, he's so frustrated at being thwarted by the Romans that he returns to Jerusalem, stops the daily sacrifices at the temple, desecrates the sanctuary, slaughters thousands of Jews, and makes a heathen idolatry mandatory on pain of death. He imposes Hellenism, meaning Greek pagan culture, uh, on Israel. And then he erects what's called the Abomination of Desolations, which is a statue of Zeus with his, with his own face superimposed on it in the, in the Holy of Holies. He slays a pig on the altar in the temple, spreads the, the pig's blood all around, and makes the priests uh, uh, eat pork. But this verse does not apply only to Antiochus Epiphanes. It's also a type or a shadow of another ruthless, demonic, egocentric, anti-Semitic despot to come. For hundreds of years after Antiochus, we know this is not only about Antiochus, because hundreds of years after Antiochus, Yeshua himself warns his disciples in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, speaking of the last days, he warns them about this ultimate abomination of desolations yet to come. And he says this, uh, when you see the abomination of desolations, spoken of, of through the prophet, known as he calls him a prophet, through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be, arise such a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. This verse has never been fulfilled. It is still yet to be fulfilled. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. So the second half of Daniel 11 is describing Antiochus on one level, but it's also a prophetic picture of the false messiah to come, where Yeshua is uh, warning us of the great tribulation. Now, most of us have seen uh, computer-enhanced special effects where, where one image is gradually changed or morphed uh, into another image. Well, something similar is happening here in Daniel 11. Uh, this image of Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, the second century B.C. Uh, tyrant uh, who blasphemed God and persecuted the Jews, he's gradually replaced with that of the anti-Messiah uh, who will seize power in the last days. Indeed, verse 35 and verse 40 expressly refer to the end of time, or the, the end times, time of the end. So although the second half of Daniel 11 uh, directly applies to Antiochus on one level, the Holy Spirit wants us to look past the figure of Antiochus to see this image or this picture of the false messiah. Look at Daniel 11, verse 32. And by smooth words and flattery, he'll corrupt those who violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. We're told that a portion of our people, sadly, will be corrupted by flatteries and will violate their covenant and, and become followers of Hellenism and, and Greek paganism under Antiochus and by extension followers of the false Messiah in the last days. But the people who know their God will be strong and do right. Or as King James says, do great exploits. <laughs> True believers will resist the evil one. In the days of Antiochus, this refers to the Maccabean revolt uh, and the, and the uh, rededication of the temple at Hanukkah. Uh, and verse 1133, and those who have insight among the, among the people will give understanding to many, yet they'll fall by sword and by flame and by captivity and by plunder for many days. So Daniel saying of those who are going to resist the false Messiah and seek to expose him, this verse tells us that many will be murdered, will be martyred, uh, put in death camps. Verse 34. Now when they fall, they'll be granted a little help, but many who are not sincere will join with them. The righteous will be helped by some who join with them in sincerity, but others will join them uh, out of insincerity. You know, out of hypocrisy uh, to, uh, to, gain, to gain their own ends. 
Verse 35, Daniel eleven thirty-five, And some of these will have, uh, who have insight will fall. Why? In, or, in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it's still to come at the appointed time. God, hear me well here. God allows this testing and persecution to occur in order to purge and purify his people. To burn off the sin in preparation for the return of Messiah. Nothing is as effective as driving God's people back to him as suffering is. When you stand in the face of sure destruction, your thoughts turn to God. The book of Hebrews refers to unnamed heroes of the faith who endured terrible privation and cruelty of whom it said this world is not worthy. Tribulation and persecution have always been the divine means of testing the reality of your faith and purging away the dross. Trials and difficulties are sometimes permitted by the Lord for the express purpose of proving and purifying your faith. It's only by fire that, that gold is refined and purified in the same way that your character is refined and purified. Daniel 11, verse 35. To refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time because it's still to come at the appointed time. So God gives Daniel uh, this most incredible description of the suffering of our, of our people through the reign of the Persians and the Greeks. And after the Greeks, of course, came the Romans. Uh, and these are all types of the ultimate false Messiah. And it's all laid out here in great detail in chapter 11. And this purging will continue until we, until our people return to the Lord. When Messiah came the first time, he came to, he came to his own, his brethren, Israel. John 5, 40, John 5, verse 40. Uh, about, uh, uh, you will not come to me, Yeshua says, that you might have life. And then Yeshua cries this in Matthew 23, uh, 37. Oh, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And then perhaps the, the, the saddest uh, uh, and the scariest of all, Yeshua says this in, in John 5, verse 43. I, I have come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name, and him you will receive. Yeshua is speaking of the ultimate false Messiah to come, the man of perdition, the man of sin. Many will receive him, uh, and many will, and therefore suffer the consequences. But instead of forgetting and forsaking his willful and disobedient people, God is gracious uh, and merciful and long-suffering. Uh, he continues this purging process to bring his people back to him uh, until the fulfillment of, in Romans 11, when Paul says, the remnant that remains after the great tribulation, uh, when the purging is complete, and it has completed its purpose, uh, Paul says, of that remnant that remain, all Israel shall be saved. Yeah. Zechariah sees this too. Look at Zechariah uh, 12, 10. Uh, he sa um, God says to Zechariah, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So look up, they will look upon me who they have pierced and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they'll weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David, David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In that day, at the height of the tribulation against our people, uh, imposed by the anti-Messiah, uh, which Daniel 12 verse 1 describes as, quote, the time of distress, which has never occurred since there was a nation until that time, Israel will look finally unto their Messiah for deliverance. And they'll finally recognize that like Joseph and his brothers, he, Yeshua, is none other than their long-lost, long-rejected brother, the one they have pierced. And in mourning and repentance, there'll be bitter weeping, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And the Lord in that day will open a fountain to wash away and to cleanse their sin and impurity. Hallelujah. And thus all Israel shall be saved, as Paul promises. 
Indeed, he says in Romans 10, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That day is coming. But before then, tragically, Daniel says oh, there'll be a time of purging, of the time of suffering in order to refine God's people. When the final evil ruler, uh, this man of sin, will emerge, empowered by, by Hasatan himself, uh, he'll have all the evil and all the power of Akashveros and Haman and Alexander and Antiochus combined and much, much more. He is a counterfeit. He is a false messiah. He at first pretends to be Israel's protector, entered, enters into a treaty with them, uh, only to turn on her in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70 week, 70th week, this great tribulation, this time of Yaakov's troubles. Indeed, verse 35 tells us this will occur at the end time, at the appointed time yet to come. Here's how the false messiah is described. Look at Daniel 11, verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases and exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous, monstrous things against the god of gods. And he'll prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. So many things this verse tells us. First it tells us, verse 36 tells us that he is the willful king. He's the king who does as he pleases. You know, according to his own will. He'll be an absolute dictator. Uh, answering to no one. Ruling with total selfishness and self-centeredness and self-will. He'll be totally self-absorbed and energized by Satan himself. Fueled by, by demonic power, uh, he'll establish absolute world, an absolute world monarchy, dictatorship, with himself at the head. And to buy and sell, just like we saw in Ephesus, and to buy and sell, you must take his mark, the mark of the beast, on your forehead or your right hand, indicating your submission and your allegiance to him. Revelation 13 tells us that, this, that the false prophet will then make an image of the beast, uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel, uh, causing all to worship the beast and his image. Look at Revelation 13, verse 15. And as many who do not worship the image of the beast will be killed. And he causes all, small and great, uh, rich and poor, free and slave, all to be given the mark of the beast uh, on their right hand or their forehead. And that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Second, this, this world religion, this false messiah, is characterized by overweening pride. Look again at Daniel eleven thirty six. It says, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll be an egomaniac. He's above every god. He's an atheist. He sets himself up above every god. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4 describes this man of lawlessness like this. He who opposes and, exalt, and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The false Messiah, counterfeiting the true Messiah, will set himself up as God right in the temple, which will be rebuilt uh, in Jerusalem. This is Satan himself warring against the Lord Almighty, demanding worship, killing all who refuse to bow to him, and especially coming against A, Israel, and B, the Messianic believers. Revelation 12 tells us they'll try to, to destroy the Jewish people and then make war against all the Messianic believers who are described as those who keep God's Torah and hold fast to the testimony of Yeshua. Look at Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman uh, went after to uh, wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Yeshua. Zechariah 13 tells us that two-thirds of Israel will perish, but one-third will be left and refined as through fire. So look at Zechariah 13, verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish. Yet one-third will be left in it. This one-third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They'll call on my name and I'll answer them. I'll say, they are my people. And they'll say, the Lord is my God. Third, this same verse, Daniel eleven thirty six 36, says the evil ruler will speak blasphemies against the Lord. Very similar to what we see again in Revelation 13, verse 5. Uh, 
uh, and these were given, and there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant word and blasphemies. And he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. He is the very mouthpiece of hell. Remember Lord of the Rings, the mouthpiece of Sauron? The false Messiah is the mouthpiece of hell. <laughs> he opens his mouth and hell speaks. He's profane. Daniel 7 says he'll try to change God's laws and God's appointed times. And then fourth and finally, Daniel 11.36 says this. He'll be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what's been determined must take place. The anti-Messiah will prosper only until the, the indignation is finished. God's purging process uh, is complete. Well, how long does this take? Daniel 7, Daniel 12, Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, all say it'll last 42 months or three and a half years or 1260 days. And then we see, we see this in Daniel 11, verse 37. Um, so is this perversion. He'll show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. So first it says he shows no regard for the god of his fathers. He rejects his heritage, his family tradition. Paul says in the last days, men will not have any more natural affection and love even for their own family. In the last days, families will break down. Children will turn on their parents. No respect for parents or with the tradition of their fathers or their religious heritage. Likewise, the false Messiah has no respect or natural affection or family love for his ancestors. Second, it says he will not regard the desire of women. Many interpret this to mean he'll be homosexual. Uh, no normal desire or capacity to, to love a woman. That's uh, hard to believe in our, in our brave new world today, right, of, of gay marriage and transgenderism and gender fluidity and non-binary alphabet soup of perversions. <laughs> Other interpretations say, no, this means they'll have no uh, interest in the, in the tenderness and kindness and graciousness that women bring to society. Third says he'll show no regard for any God but magnify himself uh, above them all. Uh, he worships only himself, just like Satan. And then finally, look at Daniel 11:38. Reveals he'll have massive military power. It says, but instead he'll honor a god of fortresses, or literally a god of strongholds. The Hebrew word here refers to forts uh, and strength uh, and military power. War will be his god. Daniel 7:23 says he'll devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. And then Daniel 11:38 goes on to say this: he'll worship and honor it with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He'll devote all his resources to building up his war machine. Sound familiar? Anyone else like that today in the world? <laughs> uh, Daniel 11, verse 39. He'll attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, the god of war, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He'll make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land uh, for a reward. He'll divide up the earth and give it to his followers. He buys their loyalty. He rules the world. Now, what will it be like, especially as a Jew, or as a Jewish or Gentile Messianic believer, to have to live through this time of great persecution and tribulation, of hell on earth? Well, I think the situation of the believers at the end of the first century in Ephesus, as we talked about at the beginning of this drash, this gives us a picture. At that time in history, from about 81 to 96, uh, common era, A.D., the same time as the book of Revelation was written, Domitian was the emperor. Now, Domitian was a bad dude. I mean, pure evil. He saw himself as God on earth. He demanded to be worshipped. Uh, he's a type or a picture of the final anti-Messiah to come. Uh, the emperor Domitian loved to watch these great spectacles of death and destruction. At one gladiator match, one of the gladiators was being heckled from someone up in the crowds, in the stands. So Domitian, he points to this person in the crowd, says, you, in the ring. And he has him fed to the animals. <laughs> Just like that. Uh, one of his priests offended him. He, he had the priest buried alive. When a certain people group, the uh, Nazameans, insulted him, he proclaimed, I ceased to, to permit them to exist. And boom, he wiped them out. There was an uprising called the Saturnine Revolt in a small corner of his empire. 
Domitian slaughtered every single one of them. And then to intimidate everybody else, he invited all his main ruling officials to a state dinner and set the table. And in front of each one of them, he set their own personalized tombstones. So you ate dinner with your tombstone staring you in the face. A subtle reminder of what happens if you ever dare to cross him. Now, Domitian inaugurated a series of Olympic Games, which he humbly called the Domitian Games. The stadium would be filled with 80,000 people watching. Uh, the games would begin by leaders of various provinces coming to report and appear before him. Then he'd address each leader. He would say to them, to you, leader of such and such a province, I have this for you. And he lists some positive things. I have this against you. And if you don't stop doing these negative things, I will come and snuff you out. I will punish you. He would go through and address the various regions of his empire. Uh, then, he begin, then they would begin the worship portion of the games by worshiping Domitian. The priests, these Roman priests wearing white linen and golden crowns, would lead the worship. And so you'd be in the stand in the crowds, uh, 80,000 people, and you'd be shouting and singing, praising and cheering and worshiping Domitian. Now imagine you're living at the end of the first century, uh, and you attend one of these famous Domitian games. You see the pagan priests dressed in white uh, with golden crowns on their heads, other people shouting, uh, Domitian himself addressing the various regions, reminding them of his power and his strength. All the crowd is cheering. This is the Domitian Games. At the very end were the gladiator matches, uh, where the combatants would, would kill each other. Uh, this was the highlight of the games. Uh, this was Domitian and his empire. Uh, and he picked Ephesus to be the world headquarters for his emperor worship cult. The head of the emperor worship cult in the whole Roman Empire was the city of Ephesus. Uh, he built a huge platform there uh, and a temple dedicated to himself. Uh, on this temple were 24 columns holding up the, the temple arches, and there were statues of 24 Roman gods and goddesses there. Uh, Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes, Apollo, Demeter, etc. And then on top of them all, he built a huge, massive 27-foot statue of himself, standing on the back of all the gods. The way the platform was built, if you came to Ephesus by sea, to the port of Ephesus, the very first thing you would see was this massive 27-foot-tall statue of Domitian dominating the horizon, uh, declaring to all that he is God. And if you came by land through the valley, the first thing you'd see was the statue of Domitian, declaring himself that all must bow down and worship his image, the image of the beast. But Domitian had a problem, a very serious problem. He was the emperor of Rome. He was the absolute dictator, but he had a problem. Because in a corner of his empire, in Ephesus, there was a small group of people who refused to bow down to him. Followers of this Jewish Messiah. And this made him furious. Domitian was perhaps the first emperor to really understand that behind this messianic movement stood this enigmatic figure, Yeshua, who was just threatening the glory of his empire. Domitian was the first to officially declare war on this figure. He had altars built throughout Ephesus. He'd parade through the city and stop at the altars. Uh, the crowd would all bow down and worship him. And if he refused, it was death. Instant execution. He did not mess around. So the question at the end of the first century was, what do I do? Domitian's coming to town. Everyone in my guild, all the stonemasons or the coppersmiths or the weavers, they're all showing up. My, absent, my absence will be noticed. Either I, buy, either I bow down or I die. And my children, they'll be killed too. What do I do? Everyone's doing it. Uh, there's, there's really no choice. Everybody's bowing down. What do I do? Now, in order to break the resistance of this little band of Yeshua followers, Domitian had their leader, a guy named John, one of, the, one of the original 12 apostles, the apostle John, he had him exiled to the island of Patmos to separate him from his flock. And while he was in exile, he wrote his congregation a letter. Some of you may have heard of it. 
It's called the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 2, verse 2 on the overhead. Revelation 2, 2. To the congregation at Ephesus, write, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. But I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. What would he say to us today? Have we also lost our first love for Yeshua? Now remember, you had to take this mark of the beast in Ephesus in order to buy or sell. And there were some believers who, who wanted to compromise. They said, just offer incense to Caesar. It's no big deal. You've got to live. You've got to eat. Your children need to live. Your children need to eat. And so they encouraged their fellow believers to just go through the motions on the outside. Uh, and that it was okay as long as you really didn't believe it in your heart. According to some scholars, this group encouraging others to offer incense to Caesar and that to take the mark of the beast, this group was called uh, the Nicolaitans. Look at Revelation 2, verse 6. But, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Yeshua begins the book of Revelation by addressing various leaders in various congregations. And he tells them, I got this for you. I've got this against you. And, and, and if you don't cease doing the, the things I'm going to have against you, I'm going to come and, and snuff out your candle, uh, your lampstand. But he praised the Ephesians for standing up against the compromising Nicolaitans. And then in Revelation 4, we're taken to the very throne room of heaven. And we see the Lord on the throne. Remember, at the back of the Domitian games, Domitian sat on the throne. But in Revelation 4, in heaven, the one who sits on the throne is no mere mortal. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 3. He has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow, like an emerald, uh, encircles the throne. Surrounding the throne are 24 thrones of the 24 elders, dressed in white linen with golden crowns. Sound familiar? For from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps are blazing, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven to the number of completion. And four living creatures are around the throne, day and night singing, Kadosh, 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 out of nights of old. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts. And the 24 elders, they lay down their crowns. And they cry, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will, they were created and had their being. And then John sees a scroll with seven seals, which is the title deed to the earth. But no one could open the scroll. Revelation 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw, not a lion, but a lamb as if slain. Not an emperor with a huge army, not a ruthless despot, but a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which again are the seven spirits of God. He came and took the scroll from him who sat on the throne. And the four living creatures before the throne of God, and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, singing, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom of priests, a melechet kohanim, a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And the angels also proclaimed, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. <laughs> Hallelujah. And the four living creatures say amen. And the others fall down and worship. What is John saying? He's saying to the congregation at Ephesus and elsewhere, he's saying, wake up, guys. I've seen the throne of the universe. And guess what? Domitian is not on it. God is. 
Do not bow down to Caesar. He is a fake. He is a fraud. This is a satanic setup. Don't do it. It's all a lie. I've seen the real thing, John says. Whatever you do, do not bow down. Do not take the mark. Can you imagine having been to these Domitian games? You know exactly what John's talking about. You know exactly what he's saying. John says, I've seen the real thing. And Domitian, he is in it. I imagine the original readers of John's letter, uh, they wept. They wept. Why? Because they were real people in real places, in real time, who had friends and neighbors and family being slaughtered because they stood up for the name of Yeshua and would not bow down to Domitian. And John saying, it is better off to die for the Lord than to live for Domitian. For Domitian cannot save your soul. Only Yeshua can. So ask yourself, who today are the Domitians in my world, in my life? The ones that everyone is bowing down to around me. And people are urging me to bow down to them too. You know, they say, you know, in this business world, you got to cheat a little bit. Uh, you got to cut corners. You got to make promises you know you can't keep. It's the only way. It, it, it's only business. Everyone does it. Or they say, but dad, all the girls in school dress like this. That's how the boys take notice. Uh, or mom, you just don't understand. Everyone talks like that. Everybody swears and curses. Or, or to survive, I've got to be cold and hard and cynical. That's the way the world is. Uh, you've got to be ready to, to put the other person down and to scratch and claw your way to the top. That's how the game is played. Or all the guys I know view porn uh, and have premarital sex, or at least try to. It's, it's our natural instinct. It's the way God made me. What's so wrong about it? Or how about this? I couldn't live without gossip, without criticizing others. And by the way, I've got to have the latest fashions to fit in, so I won't be gossiped against. That's just how it is. We are surrounded by demissions, large and small. Sometimes we feel we're the only ones holding out. And John says to you, whatever you do, do not bow down. Do not worship that idol. Now, if you study history, in the first and second century, you will find something amazing. Absolutely amazing. Scholars say by the, by the early second century, about 30 to 40 years after, after Domitian, 80 to 90% of Ephesus were believers in the Messiah. Ephesus became the center of a thriving Yeshua worship. They had no money. They had no buildings. They had no budget. They had no mass advertising campaign. They had no mega churches. They had no Starbucks inside their, 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 their church building. <laughs> and yet somehow, the whole city got turned upside down for Yeshua. And from, Eph and, and from Ephesus, it spread. It spread to Pergamum and Thyatira and Laodicea and Colossae and throughout Asia Minor. The Yeshua revolution, the revelation of Yeshua, it spread and it spread and it spread. Whole cities were converted from paganism to become followers of Yeshua the Messiah. Now, our brothers and sisters in Ephesus, if they could speak to you today, what would they say? What kind of advice or perspective would they give you? What would they say about our petty first world complaints? Uh, let me get this straight. You got stuck in traffic. <laughs> you were inconvenienced. How did you ever survive? <laughs> you know, for us in Ephesus, it was whether or not we'd be beheaded uh, or thrown to the lions or become a human torch set on fire to light the emperor's gardens at night. So, okay, let me get this straight. You've got too much homework or, or, or you can't afford the latest iPhone. Let me understand, you can meet in public in your own building, as, as openly as believers in Messiah and worship him. And you can talk about Yeshua in public. And you can go on the streets or in your social media and proclaim the gospel without the government slaughtering you. 
And you can gather together and sing praises to the Lord in public and live to tell about it? Yeah, we can do all that. Can someone bring me up Kleenex, please? Ah, thank you. Yeah, we can do all that. Okay, what would they say to us? Could the congregation at Ephesus ever even conceive of the freedoms we have? You mean you don't have to bow down to Caesar? No, at least not yet. We can freely worship the Lord today. So again, tell me what you're complaining about. You're complaining about needing uh, new shoes to fit your new outfit? <laughs> or your new house needs a new coat of paint? Uh, or the local non-Messianic rabbis are against you if you're Messianic, uh, and, and that upsets you? <laughs> well, where do you get all these expectations? If we in Ephesus could just worship God together uh, without fear for our lives, if we could just celebrate Pesach you know, and be safe, we'd be in paradise. Over in Cappadocia, they tell us, our brethren build tunnels underground complicated mazes of tunnels where a tunnel would turn and then end and turn and then end and then one would keep on going. Because Yeshua followers over there in Cappadocia, they had to move underground and live in dirt tunnels, two to three stories under the earth for months on end so they could worship and live together in authentic community, not be crucified on wooden stakes at the city gate by the emperor uh, and to slowly die agonizing, humiliating deaths for all to see. You could walk for hours in these dirt tunnels. And so our brothers in Cappadocia, they would ask us today, wait a minute, are you, staying, are you telling me in 21st century America you can actually worship the Lord above ground? Are you serious? If, if they were here today, I think they would speak to us very strongly about what it really means to be a community that loves and honors and serves and sacrifices for one another. And to be a community that's serious about following Yeshua and willing to pay any price. I think they would encourage us to reach out to our Jewish community in North Texas with the good news of Messiah Yeshua. Remember, Ephesus, this totally pagan city, the headquarters of the emperor worship cult, the site of the great of great persecution against the believers became 80 to 90% Messianic in just one generation after John wrote the book of Revelation. So we can do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants to use you to share his good news of his Messiah, to expand his kingdom. We say, but we're so small, we're so insignificant, we have no money, we have no radio show, we have no TV show, we don't even own our own building, we're just renting here. We've, we've got no, no Starbucks in our atrium. <laughs> but the Lord would say to you today, you have the Holy Spirit of God, the living God, living within you. You have prayer. You have the scriptures. You have each other. You have the promise that God will prevail in the end and that all Israel shall be saved. What more do you need? You can do it, Eschaim. Do not bow down to the demissions in your life. The gods and the idols uh, and the passions and obsessions and the addictions and desires and pursuits, they will crowd out your life uh, and take you away from the one thing that really matters, that matters for all eternity, putting Yeshua first in your life. So do not bow down. Seek the Lord. Be totally sold out in your commitment to him. The people of Ephesus would say to us today, if we stood up to Caesar at the risk of our lives, sometimes, many times, at the cost of our lives, surely you can sacrifice a little for the Lord, the lover of your soul. And the fascinating thing, the fascinating thing is that the more that the Caesars tried to crush us, the more they killed our rabbis and our leaders and they hunted us down, the faster we grew. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the congregation. The harder and more costly it was to be a follower of Yeshua, the faster we grew, and the stronger and more spiritually mature we became under persecution. Because we had to pay the price for our faith. And therefore it became real to us. Every day, we had to deny ourselves. 
We had to take up our cross. We had to choose to follow Messiah every day. What about you? Do you count the cost? Do you make this choice daily? How real is your faith? What price are you willing to pay? What hardships are you willing to endure? And of course, if you live in a little bubble and have little interaction with the outside world, how do you know? Uh, because how tested and prepared can you be? Because you don't know what price you're willing to pay. But will you stand for persecution uh, when it comes? And your school uh, and your employer uh, and your social media and, and your government are all hostile to your beliefs. Will you shine with the love of God like a city on a hill? Or will your candlestick be snuffed out? Resolve today to live with all your heart and soul and mind and strength for Yeshua. And prepare for battle. It is a spiritual war. It is a battle. So I want us to close by worshiping the Lord together with our brethren, with our brethren in heaven, who throughout the ages have died and given their life for Messiah. Even as Revelation 5 tells us that all the saints and all the angels in heaven are continually worshiping the Lamb. Because you never are worshiping God alone. You know, we think that today our worship service started here at around 10.30 a.m. No, it did not. At 10.30 a.m., we joined a worship service that's already going, that's been going on. Do you know that there's an eternal worship service going on 24-7 in heaven? Involving the whole created realm? So let's stand and raise our voices to worship uh, and to join in this eternal praise that's already in progress. And as we close, I want you to all stand. Thank you. I want you to simply repeat after me as loud and as much hard as you can. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and, 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 uh, and that praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Shabbat shalom.